c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. To histories and mysteries i'm jessica and i'm still janelle there was some l- long hang time on that janelle did you forget who you are <laughs> possibly i am twitter celebrity janelle thank you very much <laughs> uh yes d-list twitter celebrity janelle marie como i've made it with twitter yeah, I woke up the other day and I'm like, I have seven new Twitter followers. That's weird. And I had no idea what kind of ripples were carrying that forward. <laughs> You're like, I know this I is unusual. Did not know. I don't know why. Meanwhile, my phone melted. <laughs> <laughs> Just buzzing right off the nightstand. Twitter eventually like stepped in to save me from myself. It basically does this thing where you go viral where it's like so you're getting a lot of attention on Twitter. Like, it hijacks your phone when you pick it up. It takes you to the notification page and is like, you're going to want to turn most of this off. You're going to want to just see these notifications. Like, <laughs> trust us. Trust us on this one. We built this horrible garbage platform. We know what's best. We, we know exactly the whirlwind your funny little tweet is about to reap. <laughs> so you're just going to want to turn this At off. least I went viral for being funny and not for being bean dad for tormenting my daughter for six hours with a can that opener. That is true. So, you know. It was the same day. There's there's worse things. At the same time, <laughs> when a man was being summarily raked over the coals by millions of people for refusing to show his daughter how to open a can of beans, Janelle was being launched into stardom. By what I would describe as a funny tweet, but definitely not your funniest tweet. So I'm a little confused. I would agree with that. But now everybody gets to see my funniest tweets, which is terrifying. (laughs) Oh, the the scrutiny of the world, Janelle. Because here's the thing. We expect random Twitter funny people to be held up to the exact same standards as, like, elected politicians. And it is crazy. (laughs) Oh yeah, if you make dumb jokes on Twitter, like, you walk a fine wire, my friend. <laughs> it's just like, ha here's this funny thing about the metric system. Why do you hate America? <laughs> you dance madly on the lip of the can that Bean Dad's daughter can't open. At any moment, you could become Bean Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if we, have, if we have any new Bean Dad unrelated followers, hi, how are you doing? Please don't kill us. <laughs> You came for funny, we're delivering funny. This is this is the best I can do. You can either laugh or you can cancel us, but you cannot have both. <laughs> we get paid for very little of this, so <laughs> take pity. Yeah, like if 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 you're gonna sue, I, I hope you're ready to, to get a like a pair of my shorts and maybe an apology ret letter written on a napkin. Imagine suing because you followed a comedian on Twitter and that her podcast wasn't as funny as you wanted it to be. Man, we've all been indoors for a really long time, <laughs> so I could I see the disappointment, but no. <laughs> There's a direct correlation between the unemployment rate and cyberbullying. 
and uh, this <laughs> pandemic has proved it. <laughs> the less office gossip I have access to, the more I need to make strangers cry. <laughs> well, this week we're going back in time to a decade that's almost as terrible as the one we're living in now. We're going to go back to the early 1960s. Hooray! Ooh, yeah. We thought we'd shake things up this week and go in a new and totally unexpected direction for us by looking at a mysterious disappearance. Wow. And if you're joining us for the first time, this is this is like our bread and butter. This is all we do. So <laughs> A historical mystery from histories and mysteries. It's such a fitting name. I'm glad we have Look it. Look at now. us go. I miss our old name. It was fun. It was a good name, but people kept thinking we were a French language weight loss podcast, so that had to stop. You can lose a lot of weight if you just go missing. That's real dark. <laughs> you know you know how much weight Maura Murray lost? She lost 100%. Dark. All of her is lost. Dark, Jessica. Real dark. <laughs> you need an adult. <laughs> I do. Uh, yeah, my mom has not been able to check in on me in approximately six months. So... I have not been supervised. <laughs> COVID is a bad babysitter. COVID is a terrible babysitter. We're talking about the 1961 disappearance of Joan Risch, a 31-year-old housewife and mother who disappeared from her home in Lincoln, Massachusetts in broad daylight. You do like when rich, rich middle-class ladies go missing in broad daylight. God, I love it. I love it. It's just purely aspirational. I do dream of disappearing in a short window from my own home in broad daylight. <laughs> It'll happen one day, Janelle. You're already Twitter famous. You're nearly there. There's so many people now who would want to kidnap you. I hope not. I hope there's. I hope they have a long list of like pointless people who had a single viral tweet on Twitter to get through first. They're coming for Bean Dad. They're coming. They're coming for Bean Dad, and then they're coming for me. Once they're done with Feral Hog Guy, you're you're done. Nobody defeats Feral Hog Guy. That guy can shoot 30 to 50 hogs in three to five minutes. <laughs> As his children play. <laughs> Just strafing between the bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Bring around the Rosie as dad just mows down wave after wave of pig. <laughs> <laughs> Haunting. <laughs> so for disappearances to appear on this show, they typically need to be completely and totally bizarre. We don't really cover the, like, husband did it genre of true crime. Nah, that's dull. <laughs> no. Statistically more likely, but not as interesting. Not as interesting. So even by our standards, this is a pretty strange disappearance. Unlike most of the disappearances we've covered on this podcast, Joan didn't simply, like, vanish without a trace, leaving zero evidence behind. That kind of tends to be the, the type of disappearance we like. She actually left a pretty intense crime scene behind. We just can't really figure out what it means. We'll get into it. It's just like a big bloody wall that says, like, my dad did it, and we're just like, what could it mean? <laughs> Blood, yes. Answers, no. Also, unlike other disappearances we've covered on this podcast, Joan's disappearance was investigated immediately, and there were actually several significant clues. A lot of the really, like, famous missing persons cases that get rehashed endlessly on true crime blogs and podcasts are basically crimes that amount to, like, you disappeared in a one-horse town where the police didn't have the resources to look for you. You're missing forever. Very common. Why don't we have answers? Because nobody thought to look. <laughs> they were under-trained, and Jeff was on vacation. 
It's it's not exactly, you know, the special crimes loot unit of Law and Order. It's Dave, and he's retiring next year. <laughs> <laughs> nope, this one actually had some, some pretty solid investigative work done. There's several working theories about what happened to Joan, including a theory that she staged her own disappearance, because everything about this case is weird as all get out. We're gonna see. Was Joan the victim of a violent crime? Did she just gone girl herself 50 years before it was cool? Let's find out. So Joan Rish had a troubling background, a troubling childhood. Joan was born on May 12th, 1930 in Brooklyn, New York. So if you're keeping score at home, she would be 90 years old at the time we're recording this if she was still alive. So her parents were Josephine and Harold Bard. At birth, Joan was named Joan Carolyn Bard. And when she was nine years old, the family moved to New Jersey. But a year later, her parents perished in a mysterious house fire that the police deemed suspicious. Uh, was she then adopted by a count with an eyeball tattoo? Damn it, Jessica, that's the next joke I had in this fucking script. <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you, Janelle. We're, the, we're in the same age cohort and read the same children's books. <laughs> if you were a weird kid, you read these books. That's just how it went. They're very good. <laughs> They're exceptionally good. But yeah, so Joan was uh, visiting other family at the time of the fire. I don't think they ever actually got to the bottom of it or made any arrests. But instead of being chased around by a distant uncle with a tattoo of an eye on his ankle, Joan was sh- <laughs> Aha, got it in. Joan was shipped off to foster care where she reported that she was sexually abused by her foster father, which is worse. It's definitely Yeah, boy. Yeah, I know. Got got real shitty. We started with parents dying in a house fire and somehow it got worse. So after that incident, Joan went to go live with relatives who officially adopted her, and her name was changed to Joan Natris. That is the name that she would use until she got married. So after high school, Joan attended the Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, graduating in 1952 with a degree in English literature. Back in a time when you could do something with that. I'd make fun of that myself, but I have a degree in literature. And a master's in words literature yeah (laughs) i mean it's french literature and i live in canada so it's actually pretty good i like that you said french literature as if that made you more employable somehow i mean it did the government will just employ anybody who can string three words together in french (laughs) that's true got it made i come into work sober and i have an excellent parisian accent (laughs) you're all set So, after graduating, Joan began a career in publishing and quickly rose through the ranks. She started out as a secretary and then became a supervisor of the secretarial pool, which is a term for a lot of secretaries and is not a term for a secretaries-only swimming pool. She was a supervisor. He wasn't- she wasn't a lifeguard. (laughs) Just a big, writhing, empty swimming pool full of secretaries. You just reach in and pull one out when you need something typed. Sharp blow of a whistle and then just, like- an explosion of pearls as somebody like dive bombs into the. You're way too into this idea. Writhing math of nails and kitten heels. Okay, this is rapidly approaching fetish territory. <laughs> I was an administrative assistant, Janelle. I was a secretary. I can there's make a... these jokes. There's not a chance you wore kitten heels and pearls. Ever. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Every job I have ever had is a fetish. I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> At first, I worked in a library. Then, I worked as a secretary. And now I'm a tutor. And there's no 
one of these that isn't a porn category. No, that's very true. It's only a matter of time until you're, like, asking somebody to meet you after class in a sultry voice. Yeah, but, like, I speak in a tenor and I'm building a linebacker. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the one time last year when, like, someone asked me to do, like, a group clue outfit for a Halloween party and they gave me Mrs. White. There is nothing more dangerous than typing maid outfit into the internet, Janelle. <laughs> I hope you had a responsible adult there to walk you through it. I like I just I just wanted like a mob cap and like one of those tradition traditional like Victorian aprons. I didn't want that. <laughs> that is not appropriate gear for handling household chemicals or cooking. <laughs> gonna lose a nipple getting off the subject of jessica's missing nipple (laughs) i am in fine form janelle you've got all three nipples you were born with i got sick like a cat (laughs) wow i don't even know what to do with that information my brain just blue screened (laughs) (laughs) i have no words i have no thoughts i feel nothing At a certain point, it flips back from possibly a witch to definitely a wild animal. <laughs> Hearing about Jessica's nipples just feels like what it is to die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like walking in on your d- mom and dad 69ing. Oh my god, why would you even put that into words? I, I don't know. There's, you know, a deep darkness that I can't fully express. No, I've never walked in on my parents. Please tell me no. As, as, far, as, as far as I'm aware, my mom reproduces by budding. I was gonna say, I assume all of your parents' lovemaking is both fully clothed and violent. (laughs) It's the only thing that could birth you into this world, Jessica. (laughs) They're like starfish. Like, if you injure them, like, badly enough, they'll develop into two starfish because they regrow their limbs. (laughs) This is awful. This is gonna get us kicked off any... All the platforms. <laughs> I'm so excited to be cancelled. It was good being famous for a moment. <laughs> Christ. Yeah, so... I found this really, really funny tweet on the line. Turns out she's associated with a cannibal. A six-nippled cannibal born of starfish <laughs> violence. Wonderful. <laughs> so... <laughs> Back to Joan. So after becoming the secretary supervisor of the pool, um, she eventually started a career in publishing, landing a job as an editorial assistant at Harcourt Brace and World, a now defunct publishing company that was acquired by Houghton Mifflin. That sound that sounds like the paper company from uh, The Office. It does. It, it's Houghton Mifflin, Dunder Mifflin. We're so close. But uh, She moved over to Thomas Y. Crowell Company, another now-defunct publishing company, and it was while working there that she met her husband, Martin Risch, who was working as a publishing executive. The two married in 1956, when Joan was 26 years old, and the newlywed Joan Risch then left her career to start a family with Martin in Connecticut. The couple had a daughter named Lillian in 1957, and a son named David two years later in 1959. Two years after that, in 1961, the couple moved to the town of Lincoln, Massachusetts. I can't say the word Massachusetts. You spent several years in the best education in the United States money could buy. And you can't say Massachusetts. (laughs) Listen, they don't line you up at your first day of your master's degree. Just be like, all right, pronounce Massachusetts or it's over for you. Yeah, this one is Kansas. Guess what this one is? (laughs) This was never required of me. Um... (laughs) 
they moved to that state and the Metro West area just outside of Boston, where they basically just lived the American dream. They moved into a house on Old Bedford Road in an area that was sort of on the foresty side of suburban. The family had neighbors within close walking distance, but the view between houses was partially obscured by trees. So it's not like Janelle's parents, like just deep woods, but it's also... In the forest with the bears! (laughs) (laughs) But it also like wasn't my suburban childhood where you, everybody lived like six feet from each other and you could look out of your bathroom window and watch someone else poop in theirs. Like, no, it's just, it's, they got a little more privacy than that. It's it's more similar to how I grew up where, like, you know, like, technically we're within city limits, but if you walk ten feet, you might find a deer. Yep, pretty much. Old Bedford Road is actually parkland now. Like, the, the neighborhood's gone. It's no longer residential. Well, it turns out that Jones' house was on the route that the British troops had taken when they marched on Boston in 1775 at the start of the Revolutionary War. So the area is now Minuteman National Historical Park. The National Park Service bought bought up all the properties in the area, and they moved all of the houses to nearby Lexington. So if you visit the place today, you're not going to find Jones' house. You're going to find this park. When it's not COVID times, you can go see charming historical reenactments of the horrifying... 18th century war. Yeah, you can watch two cousins shooting each other in a swamp. <laughs> it's Massachusetts. It's not Alabama. <laughs> uh, it's all Alabama to me. All of the U.S. is Alabama in Jessica's mind. Yep, it's all Alabama. <laughs> hey, instead of talking about my home province of Alberta like it's the Texas of Canada, have you guys ever considered that you're all the Alabama of the world? <laughs> Just Jessica in the middle of Times Square going, all I see is Alabama. <laughs> just me just furiously playing the banjo as I stare around me. Ding, 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 ding. You know, that, that man dressed like a cowboy keeps trying to hug me with his balls out. <laughs> I don't remember that part of our trip. I mean, he didn't have his balls out then. I just assume COVID's been huff- tough on everybody. <laughs> oh, God. You think he's got underwear left after all this? I was going to say, maybe... I haven't bought underwear in months. That's more than I needed to know. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica's just been free-balling it since this pandemic began. I just... I like to let the boys breathe. <laughs> great. Just aerating the old genitals. It's great. Um, yeah. Because, like, COVID spreads better indoors, I did end up doing several nude beach shows over the summer. <laughs> <laughs> that's and like you know, I, you know people always told me that you know you might have to take off your shirt for show business but i wasn't expecting it to be that platonic i'm really i'm hoping there's no footage on youtube we'll have to burn the whole thing just that would be the one thing that would end youtube <laughs> all six of your nipples on youtube yep all all, all six of my boobs <laughs> and Quite possibly my testicles based on this conversation. <laughs> Your anatomy is confusing and ever-shifting. <laughs> hey, 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 possible new viewers. Uh, Janelle is a nice nice Canadian lady from Nova Scotia, and I am an abomination. <laughs> a formless horror of the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. This is not yet my true form. <laughs> So after moving to Massachusetts, God, why did I put the name of the state in the script so much? (laughs) After moving to Lincoln, Martin began an exciting new career at a now defunct paper company. So he did kind of live the office dream. 
Dunder Mifflin. Dunder Mifflin. It was not Dunder Mifflin, but <laughs> close enough. Joan stayed home with the children as sort of housewife. She joined the League of Women Voters, which is a women's suffrage and advocacy organization, and she started to integrate into the community. She was also an avid writer and reader, and apparently planned to go back to work and become a teacher once her children were a little older. So all in all, they were pretty much the average American family, just living their... I'm bored already. The American dream in the suburbs right up until the day that Joan disappeared. There's, there's just nothing interesting about the days or weeks or even hours before the day of her disappearance. So we actually have a pretty detailed timeline of what happened on the day Joan disappeared because she interacted with a lot of people and the timeline for her actual disappearance is pretty tight. She disappeared from a pretty short window of time. On the morning of Tuesday, October 24th, 1961, Martin Risch woke up very early in the morning to get ready for a business trip to New York City. His plan was to fly to New York, spend that night in Manhattan, and then fly home the following day. So he left the house early to catch his 8 a.m. flight out of Logan Airport, and after he was gone, Joan got both of her children up, fed them breakfast, and got them ready for the day. Lillian was four and David was two, so neither of the children were in school yet. Once the kids were done with breakfast and ready to go, Joan took her son David across the street to the home of Barbara Barker, their neighbor. Barbara appeared to be in the habit of watching the kids, and vice versa. She would take her own children over to Joan's house on a pretty regular basis. Again, pretty typical suburban stuff. I was ditched at the doorstep of many a neighbor growing up. It's gonna get more boring before it gets more interesting, because... She took her son across the street. This is the preamble to a Stephen King novel. Yeah, for sure it is. We haven't gotten to the weird, formless horrors yet. Woods and all. But uh, she then got into her blue 1951 Chevrolet with Lillian, and they went to the dentist. Like, literally the most boring suburban morning possible. They had a dentist appointment at the nearby town of Bedford. It was apparently the, a new dentist that she was seeing on the recommendation of one of her college friends. Dentist was fine. After the dentist, Joan and Lillian went shopping in a nearby department store where Joan paid for their purchases in cash. While the family was out, the milkman and mailman made their deliveries to the house. They later reported that they saw nothing unusual and nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary that day. So Joan headed home from the department store and picked up David from the Barker house on her way. They arrived back at the house at approximately 11.15 a.m. Shortly after they got home, the dry cleaner arrived to pick up some of Martin's suits for dry cleaning, because this is the halcyon days of dry cleaners who make house calls. This is actually, like, relentlessly, relentlessly mid-century. It is. Like, I, this is, this is offensively suburban. <laughs> there are actually, like, a couple of things that, like, our audience, we see your demographics audience, we know who you are. Vaguely. And they run the range, our audience runs the range from teenagers to I'm going to say not teenagers. I'm going to be judicious. <laughs> but there's a couple things in here. I had to add f footnotes because I realized some of these won't be obvious to people who did not live through the pre-internet age. But yeah, dry cleaners making house calls. That was new even for me. I did not know that was ever a thing. Milk delivery, like, stopping predates my birth, Janelle. So quaint. Like, I... <laughs> It's unbelievably quaint. Milk delivery also sort of sounds awful, though. It's like, hello, here's some room temperature milk on your doorstep. <laughs> like... Yeah, like, it's it's weird for me that there was ever a time when we just dropped that off like an Amazon package. <laughs> okay, and here's the thing. Did they have people who would just, like, 
run by people's doors and just surreptitiously steal their milk. Yeah. I was like, I can, I can imagine doing that. And I, I would run amok in the 50s. <laughs> As a milk porch pirate? <laughs> I would pirate milk porch. Porch milk? I would. <laughs> I'd do it because it was funny. You know, can, can, can you imagine, like, you're gonna go go out and get milk, but, like, because you're out, but, like, the stores are closed because it's 8 a.m. and it's the 50s, and you just see, like, a bottle of milk on someone's porch, and you're just like, I don't know how long that's been sitting there, <laughs> but I'm willing to play Russian roulette with my bowels. <laughs> Free room-temperature porch milk. What riches. Like, I, I, think, I think door-to-door milk delivery is a system that can only exist in a world where... All women are stay-at-home moms. Oh, for sure. Like, you need an adult to be home to pick up the milk almost, like, within 20 minutes of it being dropped off. That's that's kind of still how deliveries work. We just suck. <laughs> it's, nobody's home during the day anymore, but we haven't changed anything about our daily schedules. Everything's Dentist appointments and deliveries are still at 2 in the afternoon. For no real reason. Yeah. <laughs> so, dry cleaner comes by to pick up the suits... And the dry cleaner man actually had to go into the house to get the suits. Because, again, it's 1960s. You let strangers into your house all day long. But he also reported that everything seemed totally normal. He didn't notice anything strange about the house. And he didn't know anything... Didn't notice anything strange about Joan's behavior that morning. After the dry cleaner man left with the suits, Joan changed her clothes. She changed out of the more formal dress that she'd worn to run errands. And into a casual blue house dress with white sneakers. Or blue sneakers with white piping, depending on who you ask. But this isn't actually uncommon for the era. For the era, fashion was not nearly as disposable or cheap as it is now, so you didn't do household chores in your nice clothes. Yeah, a house dress is basically like a formless bag. <laughs> it's, it's like a muumuu with a bit more of a waist. <laughs> Joan fed the children some lunch and then put David down for his afternoon nap. And this was something that she did every day. He typically slept from after lunch until 2 p.m. So at 1 p.m., Barbara Barker, the neighbor who had watched David that morning, brought her son Douglas over to the Rish house to play with Lillian. Apparently, these two were just passing their kids back and forth like childcare hot potato, which is pretty typical of the era and even now, if housewives are still a thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, with, in, 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 a, in a day prior to the widespread availability of professional childcare, like, obviously, this is what you do. And at a certain age, it's like, you, you, play together. Don't care. <laughs> yeah, your friends are just whoever your parents assign to you. <laughs> well, in the suburbs, your your friend is whoever lives next door. Like, it's <laughs> proximity above all. Um, Lillian and Douglas went outside to go play in the yard, and the children later reported that as they were playing, June was sort of, June Joan was sort of puttering around outside. Um, she was pruning some of her indoor plants and going in and out of the house throughout the afternoon. When she was finished, they saw her put her pruning shears back in the garage. Shortly before 2 p.m., Joan came out of the house and led Douglas and Jillian back across the street to the Barker home. She told them that she would be back and then left to go home. Lillian and Douglas continued playing on a swing set in the Barker's yard where they did not have a view of the Rich house. They later confirmed that they didn't see anyone else in the area at the time. And in fact, Joan just sort of left them there. She didn't tell Barbara that she'd brought the children back. Barbara did notice, and at approximately 2.15pm, Barbara Barker caught a glimpse of Joan in her own driveway. So Joan was in Joan's driveway. Barbara had a partial view of Joan's home through the trees, but not a complete one. 
but from what she could see, Joan appeared to be wearing a trench coat over her clothes and was walking quickly with her arms outstretched in front of her. Barbara said at that time she'd assumed Joan was chasing one of her children. Some accounts say that Barbara saw Joan carrying something red, and other accounts say that she simply saw something red near Joan. She didn't have a clear view through the trees, though, and didn't seem to have a very long look at her. But by all accounts, this is the last confirmed sighting of Joan at 2.15. And it's pretty weird. It's pretty weird. She's outside doing something. Um, mm-hmm. In, in her house dress. With a, with a coat on over top, but she's she's dropped the kids off at the neighbor's house, didn't tell the neighbor that she was bringing them back over, said, I'll be back, and then went home. So it's already getting weird. So at roughly 3.15, a girl named Virginia Keene, who lived next door to Joan, got off the school bus and saw an unfamiliar car near the Rish house. She described it as a dirty two-tone car where one of the colors was blue. It was possibly a General Motors model, although I've also seen it described as possibly an Oldsmobile. Uh, it was it was some sort of boxy f- mid-century sedan. They all kind of look the same. At roughly 3.20, another neighbor driving down the street said he stopped to let a car back out of the driveway of either the Rish or the Keene house. The Keene said that there were no cars at all in their driveway at the time. Barbara Barker wanted to take her own children out on a shopping trip that afternoon, so at 3.40, she walked Lillian back over to the Rish house. She left Lillian at the house thinking that Joan was inside. Again, this is something that they seem to just typically do. They just ditch their kids in each other's yard. It's fine. Everybody's always home. It's 1961. The world is your daycare. People will call CPS on you if you feed your kid chicken nuggets now. But in the day, you could just leave them wherever you wanted. Yeah. Yeah, you could just leave them in a stranger's house with a can opener and a can of beans and no one would even say anything. As long as you feed them within six hours, you're good. (laughs) when barbara dropped lillian off at the house she didn't actually see joan and she didn't actually enter the home she just sort of assumed that joan was inside her car was there she had no reason not to barbara returned from her shopping trip 35 minutes later at 4 15 p.m and when she pulled into the home lillian came back to the barker house she told barbara barker that quote mommy is gone and the kitchen is covered in red paint She also told Barbara that her baby brother was crying in his crib because his diaper needed to be changed. So Barbara walked over to the Rish house to find out what was going on. Just as Lillian had said, Joan was gone and David was alone in his crib. The kitchen, though, was not covered in paint, but was a horror show of blood. Naturally. Ooh, boy. That's some pretty heavy-handed foreshadowing there. Like, get it together, writers. Yeah, it's right there with, like, you know, like, Hey, Mommy! Buttons has been sleeping a long time. Yeah, it's a kind of that like foreshadowing you only get from little kids not understanding things. But it's also like her life was just aggressively normal in suburban up until 2.15 p.m. And then 4.15 p.m. she's gone, literally never to be seen again. Barbara placed a call to the police at 4.33 p.m. to report what she had found. The police arrived on the scene at 4.38, five minutes after the call was placed. And uh, Sergeant Mike McHugh from the Lincoln Police showed up and briefly spoke to Barbara Barker, then went into the Rish house, where he discovered one of the strangest crime scenes we've probably covered on this show. So, hold on to your butts. Of course, red paint was blood. You knew that. You're an adult. You've seen things. Innocence lost. Y'all knew this was coming. You've watched Law and Order! (laughs) 
You're conceptually <laughs> aware of CSI. You're, You're an aware, adult. You knew Hopefully. where we were going with this. Uh, yeah, please don't let children listen to this podcast under any circumstances. Absolutely not. Like, you're, if you're 16, that's borderline. But if, like, you're, like, 12, go to bed. <laughs> it's past your bedtime. Even if it's yeah. 3 in the afternoon. <laughs> Auntie, Auntie Janelle and Jessica are talking. So, the walls and floor of the kitchen were splashed with blood. And you can actually find original photos of the crime scene online. They're just published and freely available. Um, oh, boy. And even in black and white, they're pretty jarring. The kitchen table and chairs had been upended as if, as if there had been some sort of struggle. Like, they were just... One does not typically knock over one's kitchen table. And the telephone receiver had been ripped off of the wall mount. So this is long before the days... This is one of these mid-century things we're going to have to just address for a moment here. This is long before the days of cordless home phones. Um, this was a wall-mounted home phone. And this is also long before the days of disposable... Uh, quick release cables you know those like ones with the little plastic clip you just give it a quick tug some some of our audience is so young they have no idea what i'm talking about at all but <laughs> yeah, like, here the here the receiver was just like in it went into the wall the cord yeah there's there's a little there's a little box on the wall and uh you would hang up the phone on the box and you're done talking but the phone cord was not like a separate thing it was hardwired into both the receiver and the the actual phone mount. So later home phones had like one had phone cords you could replace with little plastic clips that just pull in and out. These ones are hardwired in. So if you've ripped the phone off, you've done, you had to work for it. it they, these don't come off. You're gonna, you, you can't just pop down to the store to find a replacement. You're going to have to call a repairman. Yeah. So, well, I mean, if she'd been alive, she would have had to, but the phone had been, the receiver had been ripped off of the wall mount. So the receiver and the cord were in the kitchen trash can, which had been taken out from under the sink and placed in the middle of the room. The receiver had kind of like it hadn't been thrown into the edge into the trash can. It was sort of balanced on the edge of the trash can. The trash was full at the time. There was a whiskey bottle and some beer cans in there. Uh, the husband later said that the whiskey bottle was something that they had finished the night before. The two of them had, had finished drinking it. But he said he didn't quite know what the beer cans were. I've seen other accounts that say, like, the the two of them were dr beer drinkers sometimes and that it was their cans. And I've seen other accounts that say, no idea where these mysterious beer cans came from. Nobody's saying, like, oh, clearly they are simply l a, a pair of lush. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not drinking casual whiskey on a Monday, but who am I to judge? I don't live in 1961. <laughs> I have rights. I have my own bank account. I can vote, you know? I don't... <laughs> it was different back then. <laughs> I'm not legally property. Like, we're good. It's... Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think women could have their own bank accounts in 1961. I might be completely uh, off on that. I don't think they could. I don't, I, I don't think most of them could, actually. <laughs> I thought there was only very specific circumstances where a woman could have her own bank account in 1961. I think what it was is that you had to have your husband or father's permission to open one. Horrible. Like, you could Ugh. have one, but, like, only with permission. And, like, yeah. that's actually more galling. <laughs> Horrible. So, but the phone, the way the phone had been placed in the trash can, you can find pictures of this in the crime scenes. It had kind of, like, it was balancing by the earpiece from the edge of the trash can, as if somebody had, like, hung it up on the edge of the can. If you threw a phone across a room at a trash can, you'd have it land like that maybe once in a thousand times. It's 
Mm-hmm. It looks like it was placed there deliberately, and the trash can had definitely been placed in the middle of the room deliberately, which was very strange. That is decidedly a weird detail. Did they have any information about whether or not there was any blood splatter underneath the can? Oh, there was blood on the phone receiver cord and the, the phone... Okay. Whatever the hell you call the home base, but I'm there's... just I'm just I'm just wondering about the timeline of like was the can in the room when there was blood, or was it in the room after there was blood? That I don't know. That I don't okay. know. That was never okay. mentioned. Um, the family telephone directory, which was kept in the kitchen, was open to the page where you could write down emergency numbers, but no emergency numbers had actually been written down. Uh, that's fucking ominous. It's super ominous. This is before the days of 911 service. In most parts of the United States, 911 service didn't start until the mid to late 70s. Um, so in 1961, if you wanted to call the police, you had to know their actual phone number. But uh, but no, but if you wanted to call emergency services before 911 service, you had to actually know their phone number. You had to call the police, the fire department. And you had to, there was a section of the phone book in the family phone directory where you could actually write these numbers down. But no one ever had. I mean, they'd only been in this town for maybe six months. Maybe they'd just never gotten around to it. But that's the page that the phone directory was open to. The police began to do a more thorough investigation of the house. And it gets weirder. So they found drops of blood going up the stairs, eight drops of blood in the master bedroom, a drop of blood near a window in David's room, and a trail of blood leading out of the kitchen and into the driveway. There were three smears of blood on Joan's car, which was still parked in the driveway. There was one on the upper left side of the hood near the windshield, one on the right side of the fender, and one right in the middle of the trunk, which was the one that they found the most difficult to explain. And no, Joan was not in the trunk. I'm so sorry to disappoint, but you've not cracked the code of a 60-year-old case quite that easily. If it was that easy, we wouldn't be talking about it at all. There was also a coat hanger on top of the car, because fucking why not, I guess. Police also noted that although there was blood apparently just motherfucking everywhere, uh, it didn't actually appear to be a life-threatening amount of blood. I've seen different accounts. Some say that it amounted to about half a pint, and some say that it amounted to a pint, which is, like, that's a sizable amount of blood, but it is, like, what they take for a blood donation. It's It's not a lethal amount of blood superficial wounds can bleed like that without being even remotely life-threatening. Oh, yeah. Like, if you've ever seen somebody get, like, a cut to the face, it's crazy. Head wounds bleed like crazy, but they don't... You're not gonna bleed out, necessarily, from, like, a scalp wound. Yeah, half a pint of blood is gonna be pretty alarming, but it's it's not necessarily life-threatening. They thought it probably came from a superficial wound that would just bled a lot. It also appeared that somebody had sort of smeared the blood around and made it look like there was a lot more than there actually was. Um, mm. There was also blood smeared onto a door frame in the house as if somebody had grabbed the door frame to help themselves stand up. One thing that the police noted that was fairly unusual is that there were no footprints in the blood. If you've got two people who are fighting violently... Or even if you've got one person staggering around bleeding, you'd sort of exp- like chances are you're gonna step in it at some point. This was meant that the person who was bleeding was either exceptionally careful or exceptionally lucky. They were able to determine that the blood was all type O, which is Jones' blood type, but that's kind of the best they could do. Without DNA technology, they couldn't definitively say whether it was hers or not. Oh boy. 
Oh, boy. I looked up the kitchen. Oh, boy. <laughs> Holy. That is... That I mean, is, it's a lot. That, I did tell you. It was a lot of blood. That definitely looks like you dropped more than one soup can. <laughs> In black and white, it's quite striking. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not a nosebleed. Like, it's a lot more than that. There also weren't a lot of fingerprints at the scene. They eventually found one partial palm print, a single bloody thumbprint on the phone receiver, and two bloody fingerprints on a wall. Some of the articles about this case say that the fingerprints were compared to Joan's fingerprints that were on file in her medical records at the hospital, and that they were definitively proven not to be Joan's prints. Other sources say the fingerprints could not be compared to Joan's in her absence. So I actually tracked down a PDF of some of the original police reports, and there is a copy of her thumbprint in it that was taken from hospital records, so it seems the hospital did have at least some of her prints for comparison. So I'm gonna go with they were able to compare some of the prints, but um, in any case, they eventually compared more than 5,000 people against those prints, and they never found a match. Police also noted that someone seemed to have made an attempt to clean up some of the blood. There was a roll of paper towels on the floor in the kitchen. One crumpled, bloody paper towel had been torn off crumpled up and dropped on the floor, and it kind of looked like it had been used by somebody to wipe blood off their hands. A pair of two-year-old David's coveralls and underwear were also found on the floor of the kitchen, covered in blood. David was unharmed and in his room, so police believe that somebody had just used these clothes to attempt to mop up some of the blood. Police also noted that the coveralls had been kind of pressed into the floor, as if something heavy had been placed on top of them while they were still wet with blood. Unfortunately, though, although there was a lot of blood evidence at the house, there just wasn't a lot they could conclusively say about it. They couldn't conclusively say it was Joan's blood, although it seems likely that it was. Type O is the most common blood type. I'm type O. Maybe it was my blood. Um, I'm also type O, but I think I'm a different type O. Yeah, but they didn't even have the RH group. It's just type O. 45% of the US population has type O blood in general. So... That's just it. They couldn't conclusively say it was just one person's blood at the scene. There could have been more than one person's blood there. They also could not say where the bleeding actually began. It might have started in any of the places where they found blood. They, they don't know where the injury actually happened. It could have been the kitchen, but it also could have been the bedroom or the driveway or on the stairs. They just don't know. They weren't able to piece together any real timeline of events here. They also couldn't firmly establish if the bleeding person was walking around of their own volition or if they were being carried. Any of those could be possible. The police did say, though, that the scene appeared more consistent with somebody staggering around after an injury, sort of blind with pain or panic, than it did with a violent struggle. So Joan's trench coat that she had worn to run errands was still in the house, as was her purse. The only things missing were the clothes and sneakers that she'd changed into and a plain gray cloth coat that she had apparently purchased in New York. Um, Investigators estimated that she might have had around $10 in cash on her person when she disappeared, which is the equivalent of roughly $90 today. So you're not getting far on that. I mean, it's more than it sounds like. Not that much more. (laughs) It's not start a new life money. She also left without her car. Like, if she left, she was either in someone else's car or on foot. We do have witness statements, though, that suggest she left on foot. So police went through the neighborhood looking for anyone who might have seen Joan or seen something suspicious in the neighborhood that day. And several people said they had, in fact, seen something. 
One witness said they saw a woman walking around Route 2A, which was a route that intersected with Old Bedford Road, at approximately 2.45 p.m. The woman was apparently dressed in a gray coat similar to the one Joan left in, with a kerchief tied over her head. She was disheveled and was walking slightly hunched over as if she was cold or in pain. There was another sighting of a woman in the same clothing and flat shoes matching Joan's description sometime between 3.15 and 3.30 p.m. This time she was walking northbound on the Route 128 median strip. This is sort of close to her house. As far as I can tell, it's about two miles from her house. And she appeared to be disoriented and was either clutching her stomach or clutching something to her stomach. She had a dark substance that appeared to be mud or blood on her legs. Another sighting of a woman matching this description occurred at 4.30 p.m., also on Route 128, this time walking south on a different part of the route. Um, so that's also ominous. That's, yeah, that's very weird. Extremely weird, because she never went back for her kid. And if she's, and if she's injured, like, this is not what you would do to get help. Why don't you flag down somebody if you're on a highway? Yeah, like, there's plenty of people around. Like, why does why would she leave in a way that was less likely to have her seen? Uh, why would she not flag down anyone for help? Why would you leave that way at all? Why wouldn't you leave out the front and go get, like, one of your neighbors? If you were just injured. Yeah, there were also more sightings of that mysterious two-tone car. So the milkman reported that he'd seen it in the Rish's driveway when he did his deliveries five days earlier, before the disappearance. Another neighbor saw the car parked on Sunnyside Lane, which was a street that intersected with Route 2A near Old Bedford Roads, this is nearby, at 4.15 on the day of Joan's disappearance. The neighbor said she saw a man get out of the car, cut some branches off of nearby trees, put the branches in his car, and drive off. So I, I, I kind of get why she remembered that. I would probably take note of that, too. That's decently weird, yeah. The weird man filling his car with trees. I would, I would remember that. Yet another neighbor said that he saw a light blue 1959 Ford sedan, which might have been the same car, parked on Sunnyside Lane at 2.45 that afternoon. Sunnyside Lane is just a relentlessly suburban name for a street. It's too suburban it is relentlessly like, suburban. tone it down you're, you're blaming it on a bit thick <laughs> like yeah i get it this is a neighborhood where you can raise your kids fucking stop <laughs> we get it already <sighs> but that's kind of where the trail goes cold joan's husband had a pretty solid alibi for his whereabouts because he's at a business meeting in manhattan in another state yeah. he's got um, eyes on him and he's nowhere nearby Yep, the milkman and mailman also had solid alibis for the window where she disappeared. And you know you're leading a pretty... A less than ideal social life when the milkman and the mailman are the only suspects in your disappearance. (laughs) (laughs) It's the room temperature milk that got her. Always does. The one suspect that the neighbors advised the police to investigate was a man named Robert Foster. So, Foster was a purchasing agent who worked for the National Park Service. Remember, the area where Joan lived is now a protected National Historical Park, and at the time of Joan's disappearance, the Park Service was still in the process of acquiring all the properties in the area so that the forest could be restored to its historical state. 
Foster's job was to visit houses in the area and talk to them about what was going on with the project and about all the plans to eventually relocate the home so the area could be restored. Many women in the area found Foster off-putting. They felt that he, quote, overstayed his welcome during these visits, and they generally did not get a good vibe from this man. Foster had visited the Rish home on September 25th, about a month before Joan disappeared. However, he too had a solid alibi for the day Joan disappeared. He had lunch with his boss and then met with a property appraiser, so there were several people at the office who could vouch for his alibi. Hate it when the neighborhood creeps got some decent witnesses. Because that, that's the thing, is like, all of these people are ri- li- reliable, none of them are going to hold water for somebody who's actually suspicious. <laughs> like... Yeah, no, and and he was seen by, like, several pretty reputable people. His boss vouched for him, as did some other civil engineers who worked at the office. The only other possible lead was found not by the police, but by a random newspaper reporter. Serene Gerson, a reporter with Lincoln's local newspaper, was writing a story on the disappearance, and she wanted to do some background research on mysterious disappearances. So she went to the local public library and checked out some books on the subject. Again... This is one of our mid-century moments. Back in the 1960s, if you checked out a library book from a public library, the process was done with a little paper card that was tucked into a pocket that they would glue in the front of the book. Weirdly enough, I actually do remember them doing that when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, they would glue... That, might, that just might be a you-grew-up-in-a-bad-town thing. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had digital checkout even when I was a child. But... Uh, In the day, when they got a book at the library, they would glue this little paper pocket into it, and then there would be a little card inside, and that was how you checked books out. When you checked the book out, you would sign the card, and then the librarian would stamp it with the date that it was due. So when you checked out a book, you could look at the card, and you could see all the names of the people who had borrowed it before you, and when they'd check it out. Because the pre-internet age was a nightmare. I don't know why we put up with it. When you lived in a small town, if you checked out a weird book, everyone would know about it. <laughs> Immediately. Everyone who checks out that weird Without book is going to be like, mm, I see what you're looking at. It, it's, it's, like, it's like the people who like don't close their eyes during, during prayer at dinner. Like we, know, we all know who each other are. <laughs> <laughs> so when the reporter opened one of the books she checked out, which was about the mysterious disappearance of Brigham Young's 27th wife... She noticed that Joan had also checked the book out about a month before she disappeared. She then found Mm. Joan's name in a second book about a woman who disappeared and left behind nothing but some mysterious smears of blood. Um, Mm. So she put this information, she noted this information in the article that she wrote. And after the article came out, volunteers searched through the library catalog to see what else Joan might have checked out. In total, they found 25 books that Joan had checked out over the summer and early fall of 1961, right before she disappeared. Most were about mysterious disappearances, murders, or missing persons cases, and including books about people who staged their own disappearance. Huh. Really? Interesting. Interesting. Unbelievably, like, you know, Mr. King is off his meds. <laughs> ominous interesting that kind of detail but it ultimately didn't make a difference Joan has never been seen or heard from again and 60 years after she disappeared this remains an active case Joan's close friend who recommended the dentist Ms. Morton 
stated that in 1990 stated in 1996 that she believed Joan was dead and she believed that Joan died probably the day she disappeared. She said that Joan was a devoted mother who would have never left her children and for her to have done so meant that something something bad had happened to her or she would mm-hmm. have returned to her family. Her husband on the other hand said that he believed Joan was still alive and had suffered some sort of mental break or amnesia that prevented her from remembering who she was and how to get home. Some of the lead investigators on the case have a very morbid theory that Joan ended up falling into one of the construction pits along Route 28, Route 128 at the time, and that her body has ended up being paved into the road. Oh boy! Oh boy! That's that's an inside thought. That's <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> no, they just they think she's underneath the road somewhere, but they don't have any solid they, evidence, and they still don't really know how she would have gotten out onto the road disoriented. They they can't piece that piece of the puzzle together. The lead investigator said the case was quote sort of a stone around my neck. He also told reporters that he had a theory about the case but preferred not to share it. Quote, I thought they'd find a body or bones or something. Things do turn up. People don't disappear without a trace. In the end, though, it doesn't matter because all of those people, her husband, her friend, the lead investigator, all went to their graves without ever knowing what happened. So what did happen to Joan? The internet is, you know, any time the true crime community finds a, a mysterious disappearance, it's a bit of a dog with a bone situation. Yes. So uh, there are a positive cornucopia of theories about what happened to Joan. Because the problem with this case is that all the evidence put together looks like nonsense. And the best explanation really depends on which pieces of evidence you choose to believe are important and which ones you think you choose to disregard. Maybe the two-tone car is nothing. Maybe it's everything. Maybe these books she checked out from the library are just a coincidence. Joan was a writer. Maybe they're everything. It's very difficult to say how much weight you should put in any particular piece of evidence, which makes it very hard to figure out what happened. It is remarkably Gone Girl. It is remarkably Gone Girl. And when you have ambiguous situations like this, anything up to and including Bigfoot took her is pretty much on the table. I knew it! It's always Bigfoot. So one theory is that she committed suicide, which is actually what the police initially believed when they showed up on the scene. So the evidence for suicide, I don't know. I guess that like being a 1960s housewife is sort of depressing. She doesn't really seem to have another motive. No, she was apparently quite happy with her life. So the only real evidence we have for this is that the scene kind of looked like an injured person flailing around, not a violent fight. There wasn't really sign of forced entry. Joan brought the children over to the neighbor's house without telling anyone, which kind of makes it seem like she knew something was going to happen and she wanted the daughter out of the house for it. That's kind of, I think, where they came at the suicide angle. Also, I mean, suicides just happen more often than murders. That's, this is a numbers thing. <laughs> to misquote Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, no doubt, it's it, it, once you have eliminated... The impossible, whatever is left, however improbable, is probably the fucking answer. (laughs) The case against suicide, I guess the most obvious thing, is that it's been 60 years and there has been no sign of Joan's remains. It's pretty hard to hide your body that well. Yeah, after you're dead? Mm. 
Joan also had no history of mental illness, no history of depression. She was reportedly a loving mother, very dedicated, who would not want to have left her children. Also, if you are going to commit suicide and disappear without your family ever finding out what happened to you, uh, why do it in such a horrible, traumatic way? Why risk having your child come home to just a carnival house of blood? There are ways to do that without traumatizing your children, and it seems weird if this was a suicide that she would have... Yeah, why fake the murder? <laughs> yeah, why or why do it in such an obvious way and get blood all over the house if you're not going to leave a body behind? The whole thing is very strange. Why go for a walk down the highway? It It doesn't make any sense. I mean, but if you were going to, why leave? Why mm-hmm. why make your family wonder forever what happened to you? And why yeah, rip the phone out of the wall? And why open the phone to the emergency numbers? Like, why do any of this? So there's a lot of holes, I think, in that one. Another theory is that this was some sort of lover's feud gone wrong. So one theory states that Joan may have been having an affair, had a partner, boyfriend, girlfriend on the side. With a car. Yes, exactly. And that she may have been killed by this person. Maybe she tried to end the affair. Maybe she revealed that she was pregnant and the other person responded violently. This would make sense for why there was no forced entry. If Joan had a lover, perhaps she let the person into her house. This also may have explained why Joan took the children across the street. She knew that the lover was coming over and her daughter was four. She's old enough to say like, daddy, there was a strange man in the house. Like, yeah, also might explain why you see that uh, repeatedly this strange car scene nearby. Exactly. So there's a car scene in the area. She takes the children out, the child out of the house. No one else in Joan's life really had a motive to harm her. According to internet commenters, this is the rumor that actually circulated in the area after Joan disappeared. According to one blogger who claimed to be from the area, it was, quote, common knowledge that this was the true explanation. I don't know how much stock you want to put on a Reddit true crime blogger, but there you go. A Reddit true crime blogger reporting, like, 60 to 70 year old gossip? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Third hand internet gossip. This would also explain why somebody else's fingerprints were at the scene in blood. And, yeah, why the car was hanging around. But the problem with this is that if Joan was having an affair, she hid it well. None of her friends and family knew anything about this, and no trace of this person was found in the investigation that followed. There were no letters, no gifts, there was nothing in her things that suggested she was having an affair. There's also the issue of where and when Joan would have found an affair partner. Yeah, she's new to the area. She's new to the area, she reportedly did not have a lot of friends yet. I don't think that there's a lot of spicy romance happening at the League of Women Voters in 1961. Uh, you know all those political women, they're all secretly dykes. <laughs> wow, just said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Real loud. Okay, um, I, I wear, I, I, I earned that comment with this haircut. <laughs> <laughs> you did, that's true. <laughs> I don't cut my own hair for no reason. It's so I get D-word privileges. <laughs> <laughs> Just Jessica walking around telling lesbian jokes and then pointing at her own hair like, multi-pass. Like, <laughs> 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 like the girl from the fifth element. Multi-pass. <laughs> it's roughly the same haircut if my hair wasn't so curly. Pretty much. Just get a good sturdy kitchen bowl. Good to go. (laughs) 
uh, yeah, but that that is kind of the issue. And that, like, if you were paying attention to the timeline, Joan is out of the house for real short bursts. So the like these women are going on shopping trips that are forty five minutes long. That's not even if you have childcare across the street. She's not really leaving her kid for very long. They left for the dentist at like nine or ten. They're back at eleven fifteen. It would have been hard for her to squeeze in an affair around the edges of her life, especially because her daughter's old enough to sort of notice if there's a strange man around. These are nosy suburbanites who are constantly just popping into the houses unannounced. Like, if I'm having an affair, which, let's set that aside, let's not think about it too hard, but if I am having an affair, do you think I want to have the the, the milkman or the mailman or the uh, fucking like, dry cleaner just popping into my house, opening the door. Like, no, you lock that shit. Like, (laughs) Also, this is such a nosy neighborhood that they have, like, a weird car park in the neighborhood, like, twice, and, like, fucking seven people came forward about it. They all noticed. Mm -hmm. So if this two-tone car had been around a lot, I don't know. Maybe it's possible, but I feel like they were either real sneaky or... I, I don't know. Her, her, her repair partner could teleport. I have no idea. Here's the thing. You know what I know about my neighbors? Hmm. Nothing. Yeah. No, I don't know anything about them. I lived in the same apartment building in Vancouver for three years, and I learned nothing about the people who lived in the, in the same building. I couldn't even recognize them. <laughs> no, me either. I know somebody is definitely selling drugs out of this building because, for some reason, like, very expensive cars pull up in front of the building and stay for about 30 minutes. So I know somebody's dealing, but uh, there's a lot of apartments in this building. That's all that I know. (laughs) But, uh, but no. And the other strange thing is that there are several sightings of Joan hobbling around in the hours after she disappeared. Assuming those sightings were accurate, why would a spurned lover who's just attempted to murder Joan let her just go walking down a road after she died or before she died? Yeah, because it's this weird thing where like, Okay, so spurned lover comes over to the house. They have attacks her. What is yeah. an extremely short argument to escalate to the point of stabbing, or whatever? Uh, and then he just immediately leaves. I think it, like it's a very short window of time where she's seen at two fifteen. No, she's seen at two fifteen, running or walking quickly in the yard. But it's really it's a two hour window of time. The guy or girl or whoever has to turn up at the house, have an argument, has to turn violent. Joan's got a bleed in four rooms of the house and the driveway. Assuming the sightings of Joan are accurate, Joan somehow gets away while seriously injured and then just wanders around for a bit. Because she's seen until, I think the final sighting is, is after, is it 4.45 in the afternoon? It's, it seems weird that, it, that a very injured Joan could escape like that and then would just wander around not flagging down help. It would explain the telephone receiver being ripped off the wall and the, the phone book open to the emergency numbers, but still. I don't know. One of the other theories that the police had was an accidental injury, which again matches the scene, sort of. That, as you say, she's chopping vegetables for dinner, she accidentally slices an artery. Kitchens are dangerous. But one, we don't have a... Uh, a bloody knife or anything. We don't have an implement that she injured herself on. No, that's weird. 
yeah, that which is weird. We don't know how she did it. How do you grievously injure yourself in a kitchen and not leave any evidence behind of how you did it? Yeah, or what you were doing at the time. <laughs> also, like, how clumsy, how disoriented and clumsy are you that you're like, oops, silly me, and you accidentally rip your phone out of the wall and then gently place the receiver in the trash can? I don't understand that. That's Not weird. my first That's impulse. Weird as shit. Also, like, why don't you control the bleeding before you throw the can't the, the 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 phone away? And, I mean, if you accidentally injure yourself, a why not go to a neighbor for help? Even if the phone thing, mm-hmm. I don't know, you just completely just she Hulk the phone off the wall. Okay, fine. You don't have any emergency numbers written down. That sucks. But you have a neighbor across the street with a working mm-hmm. phone who can help you. You've got several yeah. neighbors in the area that you're on good terms with. And as you've said, they're all housewives. They're all home. They're all fucking home. Mm. You know, you can find help. It seems strange that if this was an accidental injury, I don't know. I mean, maybe she hit her head and did, or she had some sort of psychotic break, but that seems convenient. I don't know. That yeah, seems like that seems like an odd time for that weird. to happen. It's like, whoopsie, I just had a completely unprecedented not before like noted in my life psychotic break with nothing seemingly to instigate it in terms of stress and then i just cut my hand open and ran into the woods it's not really how mental health works no you're gonna have a psychotic breakdown that kind of happens over the course of like hours or days not like 45 minutes mm-hmm. it's it's a very short window of time to have a complete psychotic break forget who you are somehow grievously injure yourself, bleed all over the house, and flee into the street. It's it's not a lot of time. And then, how has she never come back? It, nobody ever, like, found this woman shuffling down the road and was like, you look lost. Uh, the police believe that, like, she was disoriented walking down the road and fell into a construction site after accidentally injuring herself. That's kind of the theory, I think, that they ended up going with, but I don't know. Maybe. It's less sensationalist than everything else going on here. One of the other theories, of course, is that she gone-girled herself. Obviously. Um, We have the books that she was checking out. We have the smearing of blood around to make it look, possibly to make it look more dramatic than it really was. Maybe that was intentional. The, The strange scene could have been staged. The lack of footprints could have been intentional. She's intentionally bleeding around the house and not stepping in it. Joan was an educated woman. She was a she wanted to write. She wrote prose apparently. She wrote fiction. Uh she wanted to be a teacher when the kids got older. Maybe she was just fucking done with all of it. Mm-hmm. With married life, with dentist appointments. Maybe she just said fuck this. And Because that she... is genuinely something she could have kept hidden. She could have. I mean it it wouldn't have taken a lot of tools to pull this off. She basically just rearranged things in her house weird and bled everywhere she intentionally could have intentionally got her kid out of the house so she could stage the scene but why not give herself a window with more time yeah the evidence i have against i just i have written life is not a ben affleck movie Um, (laughs) one this seems needlessly dramatic and traumatizing if she wanted to stage her own disappearance why would you stage it so that your four-year-old daughter or even your neighbor will walk in on just blood everywhere um Mm -hmm. you could just walk out the door just leave Leave the door open and just go. Why injure and weaken yourself? Yeah, like, people will come to the exact same conclusions. Never mind, like, how seriously she must have wounded herself to bleed this much. Yeah, it would suck. She's not a doctor. Like, you can't necessarily, like, 
you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Like, once you start bleeding everywhere, it's very hard to staunch it. Especially if you're trying Mm -hmm. to make a stealthy escape in broad daylight. It also doesn't make a ton of sense that she would choose this window. Her husband was gone for the night. She Why not leave in the night? Way easier. It's way easier. You've got a much easier window. Why do you need to make this needlessly mysterious and disappear in like a 45 minute window only to like walk around on a highway where people see you? Doesn't really make a ton of sense. It's, it's, it's actually more normal to think there was a house, like, an intruder, if, like, it happens at night, and then, like, your kids are asleep. You don't even have to get them out of the house. Yeah, so the whole thing is very strange. Um, and she's not a dumb woman. No. And she was reportedly a devoted mother who would not have left her kids. Like, she apparently was quite happy with her life. There was really no... If, if she was unhappy, she, she buried that shit deep, according to friends who knew her. Like... Like, your average person cannot keep this shit away from everybody. Yeah, and also, if part of your plan to stage your own disappearance involves staggering around injured in broad daylight covered in blood, you suck at disappearing. If she'd been seen by even, like, four more people, probably one of them would have tried to approach her. Yeah, it's- it's- she's lucky that nobody did. Like, that nobody pulled over and was like, hey, you seem covered in blood. It's four in the afternoon. What's up? <laughs> yeah, like, speaking for myself, if I see someone who, like, is just, like, wandering around in the woods, like, covered in blood, I'm gonna go up and talk to them. I don't care if it, I end up on the news. <laughs> I have some questions. I have questions. Also, and she's never turned up. Like, this is a lady who disappeared. No. She's a housewife, very sheltered, disappears in the burbs with $90, never turns up again. I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know that I buy it. But the last and perhaps the most interesting theory is that Joan Reesh died of an illegal abortion. This is the 1960s. Life is horrifying. Uh, birth control, not available. Abortion, not legal. Heavily stigmatized. You're heavily stigmatized. Your options over your control over your child-rearing destiny, fairly limited. So maybe there were reasons that Joan didn't want to have it. Maybe she was pregnant and she didn't want to be. There might have been reasons she didn't want another child. She wanted to go back to work after the children were older. Maybe she Mm -hmm. did not want to delay that again. Maybe she was having an affair and she knew the baby was not her husband and that the date would not match up. There's lots of reasons people don't want another, like, another kid. Maybe she just didn't want it. Yeah, and similar to suicide, that's also far more statistically likely than murder. It would explain why she got the children out of the house, And why this would be taking place during the day. It would. It would also explain the bloody fingerprints and the lack of forced entry. It would explain why she did not call for help or seek help from a neighbor. The the stigma is very real. And this was very, very illegal. And it could also explain the two-toned car in the area. She may have had some sort of consultation or meeting with the doctor even to confirm the pregnancy five days before... And then it would explain why the two-tone car was seen repeatedly in that week, and then, but not before. This was not a car that had been hanging around for weeks or months. I have seen some theories that she had a doctor travel to her and do it at the house. I've also seen theories that the quote-unquote dentist appointment that she went to that morning was actually more than a dentist appointment. Apparently some mm-hmm. dentists in the era did perform those kinds of services because they had access to anesthesia and it wasn't suspicious. 
they had they had kind of tools and basic medical training and basic medical equipment. So I've seen some theories that say she had it done at home after she dropped the kid across the street. I have seen some theories that it happened earlier in the day and that she just began to hemorrhage later on. She became disoriented or perhaps the the doctor was still in the house with her and did not allow her to call for help. Maybe she went for the phone and then the doctor pulled the cord out of the wall to prevent her from calling because he would have been in a lot of trouble if he got caught doing this. This was a possibility if you were performing these kinds of procedures back in the day that sometimes patients died. It would also explain why, like, you have this relatively bloodless incident. Like, if it's not a passionate fight, but rather somebody coldly attempting to protect themselves from legal repercussions, that would make sense. It also explains why we don't have an obvious source of injury in the home. There's no, like I said, there's no bloody knife and cutting board. There's no, like, bloody corner of a table where she's hit her head. Like, there's no, we don't know how she injures herself. So this would sort of Mm -hmm. explain how. It would also explain why when she was seen wandering around that she had blood on her legs. So, assuming that that these sightings are genuine. So, I think it's perhaps the most interesting theory maybe one that best fits the evidence we have there is of course we don't have any solid this is a this is a theory concocted on not much just the circumstances of her case and the era that she lived in because there is no solid evidence that points to her being pregnant and there's no solid evidence that she didn't want another baby she reportedly was a big fan of being a 1960s housewife there's there's also no indication that like you know like she's that desperate to not be at the home anymore. Well, yeah, she's an upper middle class housewife who, with a husband who's doing well financially. Presumably, a having a third baby wouldn't financially ruin them. Especially, it's the nineteen sixties. Houses cost nothing; they cost four buttons and a fart. There's no, you know, it's not like today where a baby will just ruin you if you've got two of them, even if you have a good job. Just absolutely devastate your finances. And also, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to, to piece how she goes with, like, struggling with an abortion doctor in her home to wandering alone on the streets. Maybe he just let her wander. Maybe she tried to walk it off and just fell and died. Hard to say. Maybe those disappear. Maybe those sightings are not her at all and the doctor disposed of her directly from her home. Maybe she just really liked books on mysterious disappearances. I certainly do, and I haven't disappeared yet. <laughs> yet <laughs> yet but uh but those are the theories if you do go missing janelle it will be extremely suspicious oh just always. people looking through your 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 google search history and just wondering at the implications i look forward to seeing deranged theories about myself on reddit ah <laughs> uh, you're gonna go viral for a completely different reason huzzah it's addicting but i i think that's all we have for now it is. A very, it's a very interesting cold case. I have no more answers for you. No updates. None. Mm. No. You don't no. get if, to know what happened. I you mean, just get to wonder and fret. If your great grandpapa like has her skull in the attic, please tell somebody. Uh, please. No, oh, please do. Contact the authorities if somehow you have information on a sixty-year-old cold case from Lincoln, Massachusetts. But if you don't enjoy. Enjoy the mystery. Enjoy just having this eat at you and never knowing. (laughs) Uh, So saying goodbye to our listeners, new and old. Uh, I have been Jessica. And I'm still Janelle.